Welcome to the Carecast. Well, welcome to uh, today's edition of the Carecast. Today, we're going to be talking about the issue of backstreet abortions. Around the time the law was changed in 1967, and um, this argument around backstreet abortions was very commonly used as an argument for legalized abortion. So, we're going to be looking a little bit at the context of the time when the law was changed in the 1960s, and we're also going to be looking at how the argument for legalized abortion is being used today, and how we're still seeing backstreet street abortions occurring in different contexts. So with me on the Carecast today, I have Philippa Taylor. Philippa, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, uh, yeah. Um, Philippa Taylor, I work for Care, running the Care Leadership Programme, um, which I've been doing for the last six months or so. Um, before that, I was actually a consultant to Care for many years, probably 20 plus years on medical ethics and family issues. But I also was head of public policy at the Christian Medical Fellowship um, for about 10 years, uh, doing all the public policy work, which involved a lot of research and writing on um, a lot of life issues. So. Yes, and Philip has written a lot of uh, articles, which you can see on the Christian Medical Fellowship website uh, about abortion and a number of other bioethical issues. Um, and she's also written a lot for the CARE website as well. So you can, you can check out some of her articles there. Um, and Nola, could you tell us a bit about yourself? Yes, I'm Nola Leach and I'm CARE's Chief Executive. Um, I've worked for CARE actually since 1999, which is a long time. Um, And particularly relevant to what we're talking about today, I began by managing CARE's Caring Services Department and working with my colleagues. We did a lot of work supporting women who were facing unplanned pregnancies or who had had abortions. So it's something that's very close to my heart. But at the moment, obviously, my job really is to keep care on the road and uh, and to look forward to the future. And I think we're a very exciting future. Wonderful. Well, thank you very, very much for joining us today. It's wonderful to have you. Um, so looking at uh, the context when uh, abortion was first legalised in Great Britain in 1967, um, just going to Nola, what do you recall about that particular time in the, in the 60s and the 70s yeah. uh, when culture was starting to shift so much? Um, did it feel like there was some kind of feminist revolution going on that, that drove this change to abortion law? Uh, did, it, did it seem like there were thousands of women dying from backstreet abortions Uh, What was it like at the time? That's a very interesting question, actually. I mean, I think there was the revolution of the 60s. And I think beginning, there was the feeling that that women were were, were gaining more freedom. But actually, around the abortion issue, I think it was far more um, um, fear, actually. Um, Fear of what would happen if you were facing an unplanned pregnancy from the point of view of how it would affect your life. And fear about what you would do and how you'd be kept safe. And I think that that was a feeling, actually. I don't think it felt as if there were thousands of abortions taking place, but certainly a lot. Um, so, yes, I think that's probably a feeling around that time from my contemporaries. Mm. Was there a, a feeling that um, to, to combat the, the numbers of abortions that were going on illegally in the back streets, um, mm. it was it was necessary to to legalize abortion that would be only oh, at it yes i think so i i think very much it was looked on as as something that was dangerous and therefore we needed to do something about it mm-hmm. yeah do you think that um this that women why do you think women were seeking backstreet abortions outside of the law do you have a sense of 
at the time why that was going on um, in such a yeah, way. Yeah, I, I think I think it was. I think the, cons- the the perception was that the majority of people were young people. Um, I don't know that was necessarily the case, but that was the perception. And I think there was a very real fear of, um, well, what on earth is going to happen to my life now? Um, you know, fear of family and the, and the reactions, fear of um, interruption to study. Mm. Um, I think for many women, though, there was also the, the sort of the, the fear of how on earth were they going to cope economically and, and just couldn't take on a child. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that um, that we we still see some of that going on today. That there's still that fear persists um, mm-hmm. around being able to to afford to have a child and continue mm-hmm. your studies mm-hmm. economically. Which um, yeah, perhaps does does lead to the question whether um, whether things have have changed drastically from that time and whether legal yeah. abortion has yeah. actually has actually helped women in that way. But um, I think there was a real feeling that that. Um, Almost abortion was the kindest thing to do, mm. even though it was, and therefore we needed to make it safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Philippa, do you know much about that particular period of time? What what uh, what research have you have you done into that that um, era? Yeah, I mean it's something I've looked more at the medical side, um, um, and obviously this has been a big argument um, for many years not just at the time of the, um, the passing of the Abortion Act and the arguments around then and the debate, um, but ever since then, it's always raised this problem of if we don't legalise it, then women will still go and have abortions, but they'll just go to have unsafe ones. They'll just go to the back streets, you know, um, and in, in, in a non-medical environment. So therefore, it's much better to legalise it. And actually, we'll come back to this later, but similar arguments are being heard um, in developing countries. Um, But I want to come back to that later because that's a really important issue to discuss. So certainly, uh, from my perspective, what I've tried to do is spend a bit of time looking over the years, I I haven't done it recently, but over the years looking at actually what was the situation in the 1960s when the Act was passed. Um, Now, it's really hard, and part of the reason actually I haven't done a huge amount of work on it is it's very difficult to find find reliable statistics. There just aren't. There was a lot of noise. as always, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence cited. There's the horror stories that are cited, which are very real, but they don't necessarily tell you the full story of what's going on. So it's very hard to find the data and the statistics. But one thing that has seemed to be very clear from what I've researched and read is that actually, despite what was being said um, about the numbers of women dying, firstly, there were very small numbers of women dying. But more importantly, the numbers of women dying, maternal mortality rates, basically pregnant women dying, had dropped significantly significantly well before the Abortion Act was passed. So well before all these debates, numbers were already falling. And that was due not at all to abortion, but actually it was due to advances in medical care, particularly um, the um, advent of penicillin, for instance. So that had reduced the numbers of women who were dying, um, pregnant women who are dying. So maternal mortality rates dropped well before the Abortion Act was passed. And another interesting reflection on that is if you look at um, what happened when Roe v. Wade in the United States mm-hmm. was passed in the 1970s, early 1973, um, you would have expected, because it was passed for the same reasons, you know, to reduce the numbers of women dying from abortions, um, 
but actually you would have therefore expected a big drop in the number of women dying, but there was almost no change at all. So there, it was a downward number of downward trajectory of women dying, but there was no change when the law was passed because women were just so far fewer women were dying anyway. Um, and also the stats are hard to find because some of these abortions are actually not carried out in the kind of um, environment that you'd see portrayed in films and in the media, but actually they're often done by medical professionals with sterile and, and decent medical equipment. So our picture of unsafe abortions is not a fully correct one. It's not, you know, necessarily someone doing it in a dirty room at the back of the house. Actually, sometimes they're done by medical professionals who um, are doing it sometimes to make money on the side. You know, I'll come back to that. that that's similar to happening in the developing countries at the moment. So our picture of what an unsafe abortion is is not necessarily one that was portrayed accurately, I don't think, at the time of the Act. Mm. Um, and uh, it is interesting since the other thing that is is worth mentioning is that because of medical advances the numbers of abortions number of women dying from abortions has dropped significantly in the 1970s so soon after the act was passed not only were the very few dying from illegal abortions there were still some at that point then dying from legal abortions so it didn't so making it legal didn't get rid of the numbers of women dying because they died from legal abortions as well as unlegal, illegal rather. Um, but again, from medical advances since uh, since the middle 1970s, very, very, I mean, I think there's probably almost zero number of women now die mm. from abortions. Um, so, so, that, so the situation now is that we don't have, there is no argument really to be made for women dying from abortions. Um, and therefore, at that point, we come to this other um, issues, uh, well, a case of where are the deaths occurring, who, who is dying, and, and, you know, we'll come to this later, obviously, but the obvious thing is that un mm. unborn children are the ones that are now dying, um, and so that's actually where we need to keep the focus, because actually very few women now die, not with medical care that we've got, so. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and this, this just highlights the the kind of importance of, in this, in the abortion debate particularly, of really uh, getting access to to the facts as much as we can and to the truth because so much of it is um yeah is is it's it's almost propaganda and it's very and there's a lot of myths around what happened um at the time and I I've just read a book about uh, what happened in America around the time uh, Roe v Wade and the law was changed um and just just a lot of the the, the myths that were going on and I think um one of the, uh, the it was a man who um, they managed to convince the, the feminist movement to take on the issue of abortion and kind of make that the, the central tenant of their movement. He later admitted that they had uh, fabricated the numbers of women who mm. were dying. They said, mm. it was, you know, millions of women were having battery abortions, hundreds of thousands of them dying. And the reality was it was, it was much lower than that. Um, the research that I've done into uh, what was happening in Britain um, has has found there were 25 women dying um, in around the time the law was changed each year, which of course is still hugely tragic. But it just highlights this need for for accuracy that it wasn't thousands of women dying, um, and just yeah, just highlights how how important that mm. is. Mm. Um, why do you think this this argument is so so powerful that it's been it's been used to support abortion rights for so long, despite the fact that as you were saying, Philippa. The, 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 matern the maternal mortality rate was reduced so much by the time the law was changed. Yeah. I, think, I think there is something, isn't there, appealing to people's feelings. But it's the, as I said before, it's, it's the kindest thing to do because people are in, you know, women are, are, are 
in great distress because they find themselves as pregnant. Um, and therefore, we should do it in, in a safe way. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that even today, I think that's a very powerful argument for people because, and certainly if we think as Christians, um, you know, we want to care for people. We want to make sure that, that they've got the best possible care, which is absolutely right. But of course, changing the law and introducing abortion, as David Steele did with his act, didn't solve the problem. And even though, and I think he genuinely, um, I mean, he said, didn't he, that, that um, he didn't want to open the door to abortion on request. Mm-hmm. But, but we've seen how, in fact, once you've introduced a, uh, a law like that, it, it changes. And we failed women. I passionately mm-hmm. believe we've failed women with this legislation. We haven't helped. Mm-hmm. Philippa, why do you think this <laughs> argument is so powerful? Yeah, I mean, it's a- it's a fascinating question, really. I think I'd answer it on two levels. I mean, I don't know. Um, who knows? This is our, our thinking on things. I think at one level, it's an argument that from those who are pro-abortion has always worked. So why try to change it? <laughs> why try to uh, you know adjust the truth or correct the truth? Um, it's an effective argument. It was an effective one at the time. Many people have grown up knowing that. So they're not going to be... Uh, they're not going to change an argument that's uh, worked well. So... so I, so that, at one level, I would say, is one of the reasons why they keep going, going for it. But also, I think it also plays into the whole agenda of the focus being on women um, and the pregnant women. Um, and, you know, obviously, as we all know, the arguments predominantly now are very focused on women's rights. Um, I think really those who, who are most strongly, the strong pro-abortion advocates, will admit that they that the unborn baby is a baby it's a human um is a person um has a certain amount of rights but just not as many as the mother it's always the mother that you know that has the final say um when you're weighing up two sets of rights and this whole focus therefore on the dangers to women <laughs> from unsafe abortion is again it just keeps the focus on the mother and takes mm-hmm. it off off the child, because the more you focus on the child, the harder arguments are to uh, support abortion. Um, so that would be my my assumption, really. Um, I I get frustrated with the arguments because I just think you know we have there is no evidence and basis on which to make these arguments, um, and and they are a distraction. I think from actually we've got two lives here that we need to be looking at, not just one. Um, but nevertheless, it is right to just. They, they keep coming back these arguments so we do as you as you say we do have to look at them as well but it is it is emotional isn't it actually and 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 i think i mean i hate using the term the issue of abortion but i think we have to recognize that 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 for a woman facing an unplanned pregnancy it is a very painful time i mean i think all our experience of working with probably hundreds of thousands of women over the years that we've worked with, is that actually, um, for the majority of them, it's not an easy decision. There are some for whom, you know, they don't seem to, it doesn't seem to affect them. But for the majority, for a variety of reasons, it is a very painful decision. And I think we have to recognise that when we're talking about it and not just think about it coldly. But, but, but yeah but I don't think the law has solved the problem. And, and it was just like putting sticking plaster on, really, wasn't it? It wasn't dealing with the underlying causes which needed to be dealt with mm. and still need to be dealt with. Yeah, absolutely. That, uh, the, the research that I've, I've, I've done into 
why women were seeking abortions at the time. And again, it's been very hard to find good evidence into this uh, as it is today. It's nobody has really uh, commissioned good research into why women seek abortion, kind of a we don't question it policy. Um, but but certainly earlier in the in the 20th century, it was very linked to poverty, attitudes to contraception, um, and, and and a whole other uh, mm-hmm. list of factors that it it wasn't just a sense of well women just didn't want to keep their child um, mm-hmm. and so whether yeah the the question really is whether just legalizing abortion has actually dealt with these fundamental inequalities that women were facing or other social problems and as you say um, women clearly uh, were, women who go through pre pre abortion counselling or post abortion counselling. They, it's a very distressing time for many of them and they 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 feel they don't have a choice um so so it, it really does lead to this question of whether whether it was the answer and should parliament have taken another route to really address address this issue um, but what what's been interesting um from my research is is seeing how much the abortion reform movement was influenced by um, a group of women initially and and men who were very um, into eugenics. So they were also part of the eugenics society. Um, And there's a very intimate relationship between uh, those who founded the Abortion uh, Law Reform Association who campaigned successfully to change the law. And many of them were also members of the eugenics society. And so it it suggests that there was more going on here than just Mm. uh, uh, a sense of well, we, we want women to have um, mm. greater, greater rights, or we want we want some of these inequalities to be um, to be solved. And Philippa, I know that you've done quite a lot of research into Mary Stopes in particular mm. and the eugenics movement. Can you tell us what you know about this relationship between eugenics and and the campaign to change the law? Yeah, I mean, my focus has mainly been on Mary Stopes. Um, and the focus for starting to look actually at her work was actually, it was from the opposite way round to looking at her and her history. I was actually looking at the work that Mary Stopes International, um, the organisation, the big abortion organisation does now. Um, and they are very focused on developing countries. And it, it struck me as I was sort of looking into some of the work that they do and the numbers of abortions in developing countries, as well as the big push to legalise abortion in developing countries and I'm thinking particularly of places like Africa and working with African pro-life advocates um, it struck me that actually it's quite a neo-colonial drive really Um, and and it comes from very sort of western the west knows best kind of attitude that we're trying to impose um, the legalizing of abortion on countries many developing countries that really don't want it their culture is very different to ours um much more sort of pro-family pro-life generally and and here we are with organizations like mary stopes trying to change laws and push abortion on countries that don't want it so that's where actually i started the my research into mary stopes because i just felt i just felt very uncomfortable about what they were doing so i then started to look into really the foundations of mary stopes international and that's where i was really struck by looking at mary stopes herself who was the one that basically who's given her name to the organization Mm. and looking at her work and she was one of the fourth you know the for the founders really of sort of modern contraception and its use um, in, well, she started off really pushing for its use, interestingly, in poor communities in um, in Britain. 
the poorer communities. And that, it doesn't take far much to just find actually her eugenic beliefs. Mm. Uh, it's very much, she felt that contraception was needed because she didn't want more people who were sort of unfit or whatever yeah. she said, or who, um, more poor people, um, disability, all of that. She just felt that women who were having sort of, um, you know, these unfit children should not be allowed, should not be, should be equipped not to, should be pushed not to have children. So incredibly eugenic. And she, I mean, the more you delve into her, I mean, it's shocking some of the stuff that she wrote. Um, and and she she actually was in correspondence with Adolf Hitler as well. So um, who obviously was <laughs> the whole uh, Nazi eugenic movement, um, obviously strongly appealed to her at the time. Um, so she was along with several others, or quite a few others of that, of that era, um, was very eugenic. I mean, she had, shockingly, I think her, her son, she had one son um, who married someone who had short, was short-sighted, had to wear glasses. And uh, she, she pretty well disowned her son because she was so against the marriage because he was marrying someone who was feeble-minded or, fee, you know, feeble-minded in some way. Mm. So, I mean, her, it, it's shocking, really. Um, yeah. And the, when I was looking into the research, the irony is that she had just been commemorated in a whole set of stamps by the post office. Yes. One of the top liberal, yeah. you know, femini- feminists that we should be admiring. And Manchester yeah. University, were, you know, had erected some sort of statue or something in commemoration of her. And I'm reading all this stuff about her eugenic beliefs, and I'm there. I do not understand how people cannot mm. see that actually someone who, on one side, is from their perspective a feminist, she's so pro contraception and everything. Actually, what she's really done, she's brought in contraception because she disagrees with people having mm. having children. Mm. Um, and the Mary Stokes abortion organization has basically taken on that legacy. <laughs> and that's where I have real concerns really, is what Mary Stokes International is all about, is about imposing abortion. And it's particularly seems to me to be targeting mm. poorer, poorer countries, less developed countries. And the whole message seems to be, you know, we don't want women to have too many children, sort of one, mm. two maximum, especially mm. the poorer you are, um, the less you should have because you can't bring up your children and we don't want them. I mean, it's it's, a, it's an awful neocolonialist, terrible imperialistic attitude um, that's been really, I think, really quite shocking. So what I've tried to do is just expose um, some of what she has done. I could sell, tell the similar story with Margaret Sanger and what she's done in the US and Planned Parenthood. That has very similar origins. Mm. Um, very similar. <laughs> She's also, Margaret Sanger comes from a, a eugenic background, eugenic beliefs, and, and so does Planned Parenthood, and they're the biggest abortion provider in the States. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so there's definitely eugenic history um, to, um, to abortion and contraception. I don't want to say in this, of course, I need to clarify, we're not against contraception per se um, in that, but it's just... Um, it, it, it's the way that she used it and imposed it on who she imposed it and her reasons for imposing it are very different to ones that we would hold to mm. ourselves mm. now. Mm. Mm. And it's bizarre that there's there's not really any attention being given to to this issue and and any to to, to the issue of eugenics influencing the abortion movement. And um, I think in the US, um, one of the Supreme Court justices had. Um, spoken uh, a lot about um, the link between eugenics and abortion reform there and and it was completely lambasted and and, uh, discredited by um, several several academics and and journalists and it just seems like there's well in Britain there just doesn't seem to be much people don't seem to care that much about this link and yet it's 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 terrible (laughs) I mean, I think uh, as Christians as well, we, we I think we increasingly recognise that this is a this is a spiritual battle, actually. Um, and um, I know that there are 
you know, some very eminent Christian uh, medical practitioners who who would say that actually there is a spiritual blindness, mm. that actually it's more than people just not understanding it or looking at, you know. And I think mm-hmm. I think yeah. that's something that, that is a real challenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's interesting is um, around the time that, well, before the law was changed in the 60s, there was this thalidomide controversy. Oh, yes. um, and a lot of the, um, yeah, the campaign around abortion law reform, which had kind of, Died, died off it. It wasn't a particularly popular campaign um, before before the thalidomide controversy, and that that kind of gave this huge boost to to the campaign to change the law. And campaigners like Ma- Madeline Sims um, and and Diane Munday, they both have admitted that that was the reason they joined uh, the Abortion Law Reform Association, and that really did give give a boost to to the campaign. Um, so which which obviously leads to this question of well. What was it attitudes to disability in the 1950s and 60s that mm. potentially led led to this law change? And it was it was eugenic, eugenically influenced um, mm. rather than than being purely about the backstreet abortions that were going on. But don't don't you think as well? Uh, uh, you know, for, I mean, for a lot of for a lot of um, ordinary people, if I can put it like that, I don't mean that in a disparaging way, but for for, for you know for, for a lot of people, um, it. They wouldn't necessarily understand the eugenic eugenic situation, or they, but but again, it comes back to that motive argument. Well, surely it's better for somebody who is going to be born with a disability and a serious disability not to be born, and it's the kindest thing to do. And and that's you know I think there is an element of that that persists, and I think that's that that's a tragedy when we. I mean, we're not saying for one moment that it's it's easy to look after somebody with a disability. There are real challenges, but there is a richness of life which which someone with a disability brings. Um, and of course, we would say that life is precious. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Of course, it's interesting, isn't it, that that whole debate then um, played out in the um, passing of the HFE Act in 1990. Mm. Um, when um, the abortion act was amended, and they, uh, are, are, you know, relatively positively, the limit for abortions was dropped from 28 weeks down to 24 weeks with the passing of that act. But as we, as we all, more many of us will realise, at the same time, abortion was allowed to birth for for disability, and it's not even for it, it's simply for the risk of. A serious disability uh, with undefined, completely undefined. Um, but it's striking that for um, a woman with a normal pregnancy, that was reduced to protected. But any woman who had the risk, even of just having a child with a disability, could have an abortion up to birth. Um, which is shocking. That's only that's only a few years ago, really. It's not long ago. So disability has always been a really difficult issue. But I think now I don't know. I, I, things have changed now because I think we are much more positively um, aware and supportive, supportive of anyone with a disability as soon as they're born, which is a great thing. You know, from the moment of birth, there's loads of protections on um, a, a baby who has a disability um, and ad- an adult too, and we're much more supportive. Um, the problem is that seems to start only at the point of birth and not before um, it's positive that there is much more support now for, for people with disabilities, but it's 
still highly concerning that again before birth there's none at all mm. uh, they have they are the least protected because they can be um killed right up to the moment of birth um so yes the whole area of disability is is always one that is sort of played out slightly separately in the abortion arguments mm. Mm. well I, I was going to ask if you if you think that um the reform the campaign to change the law would would have been as successful today based on you know potentially eugenic considerations but it it sounds like potentially people like you say Nola wouldn't recognize it as eugenics but mm. that, that those ideas have have persisted that it's it's kinder to mm. um for oh. that baby never to live and it's suffering and yeah. it's associated yeah. with disability with suffering and what yeah do you think that it, say say this law was was um there was a campaign to change it today mm. these ideas would yeah. would have been successful as a basis I think I think that is a very powerful argument today actually that people would espouse actually yes I mean I've heard it I've heard it said quite often by people that I know mm. you know well it's the kindest thing to do isn't it mm. yeah. So, um, of course, we we know that this issue hasn't hasn't gone away. The issue of backstreet abortions, because we're still seeing uh, a form of backstreet abortions going on today um, in the form of uh, what what's known as DIY at home abortions. Um, so, Philippa, can you tell us a little bit about this this change that we've seen recently, um, both both in the last um, couple of years and also during the coronavirus pandemic to allow women to take abortion pills at home? Yeah, I mean, we need to get, I mean, the COVID pandemic has brought everything more to the fore um, and I suppose has speeded a process up that actually began quite a few years ago. There's always, there's two different types of abortion, just to explain simply, there's the surgical abortions and then there's a medical abortion. Now, a medical abortion is an, an abortion that happens when, a, happens when a woman takes two abortion pills. Um, and, and it's slightly complicated, but it is quite important to get your head around the process. So um, women will be given a, an abortion pill by a doctor in a clinic um, with medical supervision because these are very powerful pills. And a first pill will be taken and that will basically kill the fetus in the womb she will then about up to 24 hours 24 hours 48 hours later be given another pill she has to go back to the clinic to take that and that then expels the baby from the womb um and uh, in the past that will have all happened in a clinic over the last few years um there have been a number of changes which have brought us to where we are firstly there have been fewer and fewer uh, surgical abortions taking place and more medical abortions <laughs> taking place. so many more women now are taking the abortion pill for a number of reasons, it's, it's easier, it's um, cheaper, a lot cheaper, um, and uh, it can be done sort of more quickly and easily, um, and you know without all the need for an operation and anaesthetic and all that kind of thing. Um, so there's an increasing number of women having a pill, um, but at the same time, um, the the debate about around the use of abortion pills has changed. And so now women, there's been pressure on saying, why should women have to go to a clinic? Why can't they just have the pill and then go home and have it in the comfort in their own home? And Scotland sort of led changes on that. And now that's been brought into um, the rest of the UK so that a woman can now just go and collect a, a pill from a clinic and then she can take the pill and the second pill both at home. Now, this has a number of um, implications. Um, psychological, um, I'm not going to go into that, we might want to touch on that at the end, because actually I think that's probably one of the most important aspects of downsides really of this, I mean there's downsides to all of it, but the psychological effects of having an abortion at home are huge. But then there's also the medical side, um, 
And while for many women it is probably a perfectly safe procedure, there are a lot of dangers in and medical contraindications really of taking these two abortion pills. And the way we're going at the moment and what's happened with this pandemic is that basically there's been a lot of pressure because women have been locked in at home saying actually women should be able to just access these pills by a telephone call um, with a medical professional, need not be a doctor, could just be a nurse, um, and she'll have these pills sent to her and then she can take have the abortion and take the pills at home. The danger with that is there's several. Firstly, there's no proper medical supervision. Secondly, we don't know um, whether the woman is taken, taking the pills separately or not, whether she takes them together, what the gap is. And that has a big implication, a big impact on the effectiveness of the abortion pill. And then there's not, we don't know what the follow-up is like. We do know that in research, they've done big research, um, 48,000 women or something in um, Finland, and they found that nearly 20% of women who had a medical abortion had to have surgical evacuation afterwards. Mm. In other words, for 20% of women, it wasn't effective. Far more complications from women having a medical abortion mm. than a surgical abortion. Um, now, those women, those 20% of women having a surgical evacuation actually means that they need to get out of their home and into the hospital. We don't know if that data is recorded as um, a failed abortion or not. We don't know how that's recorded. I suspect it's not. It's probably often just recorded as a miscarriage or something else. But we do know there are a lot of complications, medical complications from women having these medical abortions at home. And the problem now is that law has effectively changed. And what we've what we've seen over these last few years is the whole use of medical abortion pills being taken away from the medical profession and put basically purely into the hands of women. With the long-term um, effect, really, of women being able to just ring a doctor or nurse saying, please, can you send me these? I'm going to have these at home. And we don't know what the follow-up is. We don't know what the medical outcomes are going to be. And it will inevitably lead to more women effectively accessing this kind of these kind of very powerful pills off the internet um, and without proper follow-up check data um, data collection or anything. Um, and just to put it all in context, sorry, um, the numbers of women who are having medical um, abortions have skyrocketed over the last few years. And actually we have nearly 200,000 abortions take place in England and Wales um, in, uh, per year. The numbers of women who are having medical abortions in that is well over 100,000 women every year. So this is a massive mm. issue. Because that's well over half, well over half are having medical abortions. If 20% of those are having medical problems post um, taking the pills, we could be looking at something like 23,000 women a year going, um, having medical complications and needing surgical evacuation of their baby after um, a failed abortion attempt. Um, so, so these are really large figures. And I don't think most people have really grasped what a significant change we're seeing now and the way abortion is happening and the effect that this is happening on women. Um, but I'm, I'll, I'll stop there because the psychological side then is the next issue. It's huge. It must be. I mean, I can't get my head around what, what, well, not even necessarily a young person, but having, you know, taking these pills at home and then facing what she's facing at home. I, I, the effect must be enormous at times, particularly if there's been no preparation, no real care, no aftercare. I think it's I think it's terrifying. The only I mean, there's very little research. I've talked to people who work in pregnancy centres, and there are anecdotal stories of the effect on women. Of basically, it, it, it's a real problem. It's firstly there's two areas where it really affects them. Firstly, 
If you have a surgical abortion, you go under an anesthetic. I'm not in any way wanting to advocate surgical abortions, but you go under an anesthetic and someone else does the job for you. You kind of don't take responsibility. The doctor said you need to have an abortion, so he signed the form and then another doctor's carried it out. With a medical abortion, you're having to take the pill yourself. So you're taking full responsibility for doing it. And then you're having to, to put it crudely, push the baby away. Um, and so a woman is taking full responsibility. She's also doing that in her own home, which normally is a safe place where she should feel comfortable and at home. And that's something that's is not happening in a sort of medical clinic. It's happening at her home. And, and are there people around to help her? Uh, well, probably not. She's probably on her own. Yeah. And, and I just, I'm so desperately concerned about the effect this is going to happen have on, on women. And, and I, I don't think there's any data. I don't think that, well, I, I, I think the effects could be devastating long term. Um, but I don't think women are going to speak out because, I don't know, Nola, you may have some opinions on. Well, I, I think we know, don't we, in trying to collect stories and data, because it is such a painful experience for women and such a difficult experience um, that they they don't necessarily feel able to speak out. And certainly the the the, the evidence we have from the, from the work that we do with with our initiative open, for example, with women who've, who've had a, an abortion and dealing with the post abortion issues. Sometimes it's years later and they've never talked about it. And, and all this stuff comes tumbling out. And, and yeah, I think that psychological side is huge. Mm. And it is concerning that, yeah, like you say, Philippa, no one really has commissioned good research into what, what that impact is. And I think Fiona Bruce uh, asked, the Fiona Bruce MP asked um, the government what, what uh, assessment they'd made of the impact mm. this would have on w- women. And they said, there's been no assessment made of the psychological impact of passing a fetus at home. And uh, I know when NICE updated their guidance recently, they had uh, they had recommended that um, practitioners mm. describe what the pregnancy would look like because women were finding in some of the studies they've been doing in other countries that they were surprised at how human-like the fetus appeared, mm. that it had a face, et cetera. So, um, yeah, clearly that there's there's this whole minefield here that that um, nobody's nobody's really looking into. Mm. And, uh, you know, at Care, we're, we're really concerned about mm. the impact this is this is going to have on women. And we've seen cases like in the media recently, uh, a woman had a at home abortion, a baby at 28 weeks gestation. So there's not even accurate gestational scans going on. So that's, this is, a, I mean, that's um, a huge issue. The gestation. Because these pills only work if you get the correct gestation. <laughs> and it, it, they work most effectively up to 10, 10, possibly 12 weeks. But women don't always know. Doctors can't even and tell unless they have a scan, right. which is, again, comes back to yet another reason why taking it out of medical clinics and medical supervision mm. is potentially so dangerous. Because you're right, that 28-week one mm. was horrifying, but I suspect it's not a, an isolated case as well. It is interesting, actually, you refer then to the NICE guidance, and that, uh, which is... Which you're, correct but it talks about the pregnancy and this is the danger of language again is that women are shocked when they're passing mm. a baby and they see like an arm or a, or a leg or fingers and they develop because they're not told they're only told about the pregnancy and not yeah. the no word ever used to say yeah. this is a baby and yeah. if the correct language were used then it might at least give people a bit more warning mm. um, uh, we hide behind euphemisms all the time and so women are, are doubly shocked because they're, they're also hiding and they're not they're trying to sort of mm. pretend that this isn't really a baby, but then suddenly they see it in front of them and it is. Um, so language is a big 
area where a lot of the truth is hidden. Yes. And this may, this adds to the argument, doesn't it, that actually abortion has not helped women. I mean, the argument is, and particularly in an individualistic society now, that, it, that it's, you know, it's a woman's choice, she wants it, it's good for her. We have failed women, actually, because we haven't cared for them in the way that we should, and we haven't dealt with the underlying issues that cause women to be in that situation. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, and this, this is a case in point that's a kind of bizarre um, return to, to battery abortions mm. that everyone was saying was so abhorrent and we need to do something about. And yet we're making abortion more and more kind of privatised in the, in the home yeah. and that's sanctioned by, by the state, you know. Um, and what, yes. So what, what do you think abortion is going to be looking like in, in the future? What, how, how will these services change going forwards? Philip, I know you've done some thinking on this. Yeah, I mean, I... I was really struck when I read a couple of years ago about um, someone in the States wrote this, and I thought about it a lot, and I've written it in one of my blogs, but I said, in the future, I suspect what we'll see more and more is a young girl in her room at home getting doing a pregnancy test, which is really easy, you could just buy that from anywhere, get that off the internet from a mobile phone, do a pregnancy test, see that she's pregnant, get straight onto her mobile phone, get some pills sent to her in the post. And we know that there's loads of um, websites where you can get um, abortion pills, mm-hmm. particularly in the States, um, that's where it's much more prevalent, but certainly over here. Um, you can get it without even prescription. So she could get that a few days later and then take the pills and have the abortion at home and no one need ever know, mm. never know. And um, and that, I think, is going to happen more and more. Research has done on contraception that was really advocating, actually, that these pills, posting pills, was, was fine and safe. But actually, if you looked into the research itself, it was fascinating because mm. there was so much wrong. The packages were broken, the doses were wrong, they required no prescription, the instructions weren't often in the packages and things. And you're, t- and you're thinking, you know, these young girls will be taking mm. incredibly mm. powerful drugs mm. and with no... Um, no proper instructions or doses, and usually yeah. the doses were too small, actually, which would mean that the abortion effective wasn't effective, wouldn't work, and so therefore she would have to go and have follow-up if she goes and has follow-up, or does she wait for an infection before she has follow-up? But I think that more and more we're going to see a lot more girls just accessing abortion off the internet um, and, and medical supervision being taken out of it. And that's actually what abortion advocates want, yeah. is they want to take away as many of the legal restrictions as possible. They want to take away the medical um, supervision um, as much as possible, and they just want to give put it right back in the hands of women. But this is, as as you say, this is almost effectively going back to the back streets because mm. it's taking because mm. the back street abortions were in effect they were unsafe abortions, and that's defined as without any medical supervision, supervision, mm. um, and in in a non medical place. Well, that's exactly what's happening in a in a, a, a girl's home. <laughs> no mm. medical supervision and no medical equipment or anything. That surely is the same as a, an illegal abortion, um, and she can access things illegally as well maybe one day legally here um the way we're going at the moment but um yes that's why i sort of see it coming as as full circle mm-hmm. yeah. yeah it just highlights the importance of um us raising awareness own awareness of these um mm-hmm. issues going forwards and, and doing all we can to um to fight against changes that will, will impact women even more negatively than, than they have in the mm-hmm. past um, Philippa, just going back to what we touched on earlier about um, the practice of um, preventing unsafe abortion um, in uh, developing countries, and, and you, you, you've done some research into Mary Stopes International. What have you found out about um, about Mary Stopes International and the kind of neo-colonial work that, that um, as, as you said, that they're doing in, in developing countries? 
My main source actually has been a, a, an amazing um, pro-life activist called Uju Ekocha, I think. She's a Nigerian. She's one uh, amazing lady. And she has written, in fact, I've got it here because I wanted to reference uh, something that she had um, written and found out about illegal abortion. So she's written this amazing book called Target Africa, which is basically all about ideological neocolonialism um, in the 21st century. And she has done a lot of research really into organizations like Mary Stokes imposing um, not just abortion, but a whole load of sort of Western Western secularism really on developing countries. And I was very struck. I mean, Mary Stokes is a great example, but I remember when I read this, I was very struck and it brings us back to your, your research and the whole sort of what we started out with on backstreet abortions. Because, and I'm, I'm, I might just reference it in here and look down at this, but actually South Africa has the most liberal law um, in the whole of Africa. It's effectively Western. So they provide legal abortions and actually free abortions in public health care facilities. So their abortion rate is one of the highest in Africa. Um, but interestingly, they also have a very high maternal mortality rate. The neighbouring Botswana has a lower maternal mortality rate and abortion there is illegal and it's a poorer country. So South Africa, this is what's fascinating, South Africa has free abortions, legal abortion, and yet has um, more a higher maternal mortality rate there than other countries. And it also has a lot of illegal abortions. And this is what she also cites. She has, it has a huge number of illegal abortions. So legalizing abortion in South Africa did not get rid of maternal mortality. It did not get rid of illegal abortions. And she says it's because people, probably as in the UK here, you know, 30, 40 years, 50 years ago, um, a, a lot of medical doctors will do it for money. Um, it's, it's easier to bypass the legal system. Um, I mean, there's other reasons for doing it illegally, but certainly there are the numbers, and the numbers are very difficult to find out, so mm. she does say, but there's still large numbers of illegal abortions. And the final thing, of course, to know is that the number of abortions in South Africa, legal abortions, has skyrocketed. Mm. So they have hundreds of thousands so they have hundreds of thousands of abortions, deaths per year from abortion. They still have a high maternal mortality rate and they still have large numbers of illegal abortions. So it's a fascinating little case study to show even now that legalizing abortion does not make mm. abortions safe. Mm. What it does, to be honest, is allow, it increases the number of abortions per se to huge numbers. And she spends a lot of time, she's written... <laughs> She's done films and written a lot on the effects of women on women of abortion and in countries where medical care is poor and women can't access good maternal care. Um, mm. It's really dangerous having an abortion there. The, the implications for them physically uh, are, are very concerning. Yeah. So there's a, 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 a real problem when you don't have good medical care there, mm. um, clean water, sanitation. Um, medical facilities, then the term for mortality rates will always be higher with abortion, whether it's legal or illegal. Mm -hmm. um, so it is. So the imposition really of abortion on these cultures is not just not wanted; it's also very damaging mm -hmm. to women's health. Mm -hmm. um, it's a real example of how this argument is being used again, and you see it often in kind of international development um, yeah. conferences and things around reproductive rights that. Um, well, we need to prevent unsafe abortion in developing countries and they cite figures of women who are, have died mm. from unsafe abortions. Mm. And um, it just shows that this, this, this argument has mm. just been... That's, why, that's yeah. why this South African research from her book is really helpful because it just is, 
Mm. It's a counter argument, yeah, using data. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So look, looking at the impact on, on women, and we've touched a bit on this kind of medically and mm. a bit of it, but you mentioned psychological impact. But um, when when you're from from your experience with Care Confidential and uh, mm. working with pregnancy centres now, I know both both of you have good relationships with pregnancy centres. And um, what what do you what impact do you think? Uh, parliament in 1967 just just legalizing abortion what impact has that actually had on on women in your experience and has has preventing backstreet abortions actually helped women ultimately I, I passionately believe it hasn't. I mean, I think all the evidence is, um, admittedly it's difficult to get evidence at times, but is that 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 we haven't helped women. Um, we either don't give them the full information so they can make an informed decision um, or we have opened we opened a door with the, with the 67 act which um, which led to um, which fed into I mean it fed into the disability debate as we've seen with fluidamide it's fed into now the the individualization of society and it's my right it's my body I can do what I want um, which which is really dangerous and what the act didn't do it didn't address the reasons and if you don't address the reasons it is just like a sticking plaster so it didn't address the fact that, that people were in poverty it didn't address the fact that, that there was there was undue pressure from from a from a partner or husband. I was amazed actually when I started doing this work with care that the majority actually of women who were presenting saying that they wanted an abortion were not young people they were women who were married or had a partner and the economic reasons you know it's very difficult for a woman when you've got um you've got say two two children three children and your your husband or your partner says to you if you go through with this pregnancy I'm leaving you mm. well what a choice mm. and so what we found was that that women would come and say I want an abortion but when you actually connected with them, with their heart, with their mind, they actually were saying, I just want an out of the situation I'm in. What's the solution? And when you dealt with the problems, then actually many of them kept their babies and, and you know, um, and, and were, were incredibly grateful they did. But it is a challenge. And I, I don't think we help women at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I found interesting research. I mean, it's not... It's not a completely clear cut, but it was certainly there was certainly an obvious trend from research I found about the numbers of men and women mm-hmm. thinking that abortion, um, the time limit for abortion should be reduced, which in effect is reflecting what where, who what men and women think about abortion, whether they think it should be legalized or not, and at what rate. And it was very interesting because women actually were more, just to put it very simply, were more against abortion than men men were more supportive of much more liberal laws abortion laws and that says to me that actually women in their hearts many women oh this is a massive generalization but many women in their hearts actually know that they're carrying their their child and they don't want an abortion um whereas men it's different they're probably thinking oh my goodness i'm going to have the responsibility of this baby and they don't they're not carrying the child and so for them abortion is actually a a quite a useful response way to get out of responsibility and caring for a child I mean this is putting it very crudely um but I think it is interesting because I just think that a lot of women know in their hearts yeah well it's fascinating 
Yeah, you'll yeah. know that you'll know this, but it's true. But but you know the the, the, the stories of the women, and actually, it happened quite often, who'd come and present and say, "I want an abortion." Then it would also emerge that they were they were walking around mother care looking at baby clothes. They'd stopped eating certain cheeses because they were damaging to the. Baby. So there's that split in the mind. They're thinking of they are thinking of, of, yeah. of what they're carrying as a baby. Mm-hmm. And now, of course, with with the advances in technology and and and, and medicine and so on, that that you can see the image at a very very early stage, mm-hmm. and it isn't just a clump of cells. Yeah. yeah. So, as as Christians wanting to, of course, have a compassionate response to this issue, um, what would you say to um, a Christian that 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 maybe? Um, is against abortion in, in, uh, on principle. They they recognise that an unborn baby is, is a person made in the image of God, but they're very concerned about women being harmed from, from um, getting an illegal back, um, backstreet abortion. Um, and so they, they, they see abortion, legal abortion as a sort of necessary evil or something that, that we have to sort of accept. What would your response be to um, a Christian in, in who, who holds that view? Philippa, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I'd like to also hear, I mean, Ola will be good on this. My my response is usually, okay, the bigger picture is I don't think it's right to force a decision on no. women. Women have to make their own choice where we're at now. Um, abortion is legal in this country, so women have to make a choice. Yeah. The big question is, is she making an informed decision and is she making an unbiased, unpressured decision? Is this the decision she's making for what she wants? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where I would say, look, if we really want to enable women to have an informed and an unpressured decision we need to make sure they know all the facts um you know the sort of factual side the risks and the consequences of having an abortion but we at the same time need to make sure that everything is there to counter the concerns that she might be having about the baby whether it's support from her partner whether it's support from her parents those are often the two areas where she has the least support, sadly, um, whether she's worried about education, whether she's worried about money, um, whether she's worried just simply about having enough equipment or whatever it is. If you put those things in place and just mm. say, someone is, you know, we are here to support you. There are people that will support you all the way through. We'll give you all the support that you need if this is your concern. Then I think that's the most Christian answer that we can give, just really caring for the woman, but ultimately not forcing a decision on her. And I think as Christians, we do have to be careful, much as I'd love to force women to in some ways, because I don't want them to choose to have an abortion. But women, we're free as Christians to make decisions about our faith and about everything. So I think it's right for women to make their own decision, but with full information and support. Yeah, and as Christians, to be there if the woman does decide to to go through with a termination, that we are there if she wants help afterwards to help her. Why do you think that's so important, Nola? Because I think I think well, obviously it's because we're showing love to somebody who is in need, but I think all the evidence is as well that that God can redeem those situations, mm-hmm. and I think that's incredibly powerful. And I think, um, I mean, I talked at the beginning when I was talking about the, you know, it's a very emotive issue and it's very emotional. Um, but, but in care, we we can remember um, a number of things actually. But but on the twenty fifth anniversary of the of the introduction of the abortion act, we held a, a a large event in the Albert Hall, and at the end, they dropped petals from the ceiling. And they just kept coming and coming and coming. 
And it was so powerful because each petal represented a life. Now, that was a number of years ago. It's magnified so much more now. And at that event, Graham Kendrick wrote a song for us. And the words just stick in my mind all the time. One of the lines is, we've sacrificed the children on the altar of our gods. And I think, well, I am passionate about caring for the mother. And we have to. But actually, we must remember that that is a baby as well. Absolutely. And it's both. Yeah, it's both. It's so important. We care for both. Yeah. Well, um, that that brings our discussion to a close today. Thank you both so much. Um, it's been really fascinating just hearing your uh, both of your perspectives and experiences. Um, of course, Nola mentioned that we, we do have uh, post-abortion healing retreats um, through our ministry open. So if anything that we've discussed today affects you personally, then please do get in touch with that ministry. Um, we'd love to help you. Uh, but thank you so much, Philippa uh, Taylor and Nola Leach for joining us today on The Carecast. Thank you. You've been listening to The Carecast. Remember to subscribe to get the latest episodes and find out more about the work of care on care.org.uk. Care for what you believe 